0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 1. I will continue to verse 17. As we continue with Paul on his second missionary journey, he has just left Athens where he was, we think, chastised or ridiculed before the Areopagus, the Council of the Areopagus, when he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. He had tried to debate and evangelize these pagans in Athens Got a few couple of converts, Damaris, a woman, and Dionysus, the Areopagite, and then some others. And then he left there without establishing a church, and he went to Corinth. And Corinth is right across Greece there. Attica, Athens is in Attica. Corinth is right at the head of the the Isthmus of Corinth. Not too far away, about 50 miles, according to the NIV study Bible. He could have gone by sea, of course, from the port of Piraeus in Athens to Corinth's port of Synchria. Or he could have just gone overland. we don't know. But at any rate, he ends up in Corinth. It's impossible to say how long Paul had stayed at Athens. We know that he stayed for 18 months here at Corinth. So he's, he's settled, settling in for a long stay here. Now Corinth is one of the major cities of Greece, of course. If you read Greek history, it shows up a whole lot. It had been re- recently rebuilt by the Romans. It had a considerable Jewish population, and that population was probably even larger than usual because of Claudius' Claudius's banishment of the Jews from, the, from Rome in the early 50s. This is approximately 50 when Paul is in Corinth. Most people date Paul's trip to Corinth between 49 and 51. They do that because a proconsul named Gallio is mentioned in this letter, and we know his dates. So that's how the scholars date the trip. So it's somewhere between 49 and 51 is the is the second journey. And so we're somewhere around the early 50s now as we're in Corinth. We go to verse 2 in Acts 18 in Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. There's that de- famous decree I was just telling you about. So Paul came to them. Now Pontus is, of course, is the right in the center of the northern coast of Asia Minor, on the southern shore of the Black Sea, sort of a famous place. Aquila was from there. Of course, he ended up in Rome somehow. Somewhere he had married Priscilla along the way. Priscilla is a diminutive form of Prisca. Sometimes you'll see her name mentioned as Prisca. Of course, these two became prominent as co-workers with. Paul. Priscilla and Aquila are Latin names, so they must have lived at Rome long enough so as to lose the Jewish family names, but they didn't live there long enough not to get kicked out by Claudius. Well, in the providence of God, Rome lost Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, but Paul got them. He got their services by meeting them in Corinth. Now, they were probably already Christians by the time they got to Corinth. No conversion is mentioned of them in Corinth. They may have been converted by pilgrims returning from the Pentecostal conversions mentioned in Acts two, as they went back to their hometown, to Rome, and they, that might have been how they got converted. Somebody or some, maybe somebody else later at a later time converted them. We don't know, but at any rate, they partnered with Paul here in Christian work. Now, one point I can't help but pointing out here is that Aquila is mentioned before Priscilla. Feminists love to say, "See there, Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila," therefore Priscilla took the lead in marriage or was more important, or was teaching Aquila and all this other feminist gobbledygook. Well, here, Aquila is mentioned first. Does that prove that Aquila was, takes the lead marriage? No, it mentions that it, it just suggests that his name was mentioned first, and I'm not going to make anything out of it. But unless somebody wants to say, on the contrary, that when Priscilla is mentioned first, she's the leader, I'm just going to quote this verse right here. By the way, I just said that the second journey was between 49 and 51. There are some alternative datings that have it 51 to 53 minority view. I don't know why. We're going to go with the majority view here, 49 to 51. Now, this decree of Claudius to kick the Jews out is well attested. We see it in Suetonius, the famous Roman historian. Suetonius gives the reason as for the expulsion by Claudius, this famous quote. "There, referring to the Jews, their continual tumults instigated by Crestus. Well, that's interesting. Crestus is a common misspelling of Christ, well, Clark doubts that this was, that Jesus, that this was, a, that this Crestus refers to Christ because Jesus was never in Rome. However, I say to that, Jesus' teaching was in Rome. The riots were about Christ, not caused by Christ, as the NIV Study Bible says. The Jews were constantly disputing and opposing Christians, and Claudius finally got fed up with it, and he kicked them out, kicked the Jews out, I figured kicked the Jews out, of course, I guess that means the Christians, too, because they were Jewish. Apollo and, Pris, excuse me, Pris, uh, Aquila and Priscilla were both Jewish Christians. They got kicked out of Rome. Now, a, an historical footnote, the Jews flooded back to Rome after Claudius died. He His rule ended in 54 when he died, and so the Jews all went back to Rome. So Claudius' decree only lasted during his lifetime. I mentioned that Aquila was from Pontus originally, northern central northern shore of asia minor there were a lot of jews there and this was a heathen location but there were a lot of jews i mentioned that because it's amazing how many places in asia minor there were lots of jews everywhere you go there's jews jews all over i remember reading truch the famous church historian say i think he estimated somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of every major city in asia minor were jews we go to verse 3 in acts 18 and being of the same occupation stayed that's referring to paul paul stayed with them stayed with aquila and priscilla and worked for they were tit makers by trade now paul would have been taught a trade while he was young because it was jewish custom to provide manual training for youths. as the niv study bible and clark point out and this was true whether you were rich or whether you were poor or whether you were a big shot bible scholar like paul was doesn't matter you you're taught a manual trade now, this working that Paul did, it was not talking about Christian work. it's talking about secular work, trying to make money. The great learned scholar Paul was not afraid to get his hands dirty, was he not? Why did Paul do this? Why did he work in Corinth? Well, so that he wouldn't be a burden to the church, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. Here are the scriptures that prove that. 1 Corinthians nine twelve. Paul is writing to the Corinthians later on. and He says, if others share this rightful claim, i.e., to material things, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more... Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And of course, the obstacle would be his critics would say, You're just preaching for money. You don't give a rip about the people you're preaching to, and your religion is phony. Would to the Lord that these scandalous TV preachers who've caused so much shame, who've cast so much shame on the body of Christ, would understand that when they make their pleas for money, people just mock them and turn their turn the ears off. Paul never did that. First Corinthians 9.15, he says this to the Corinthians, but I've made no use of any of these rights, these rights to material things, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, boasting that he's not preaching for money. And as I say, compare that to the way not only TV preachers, but ministries in general, beg for money. I remember Hudson Taylor never did. He refused. I guess he got this idea from Paul. He refused to ever mention money to anybody. And his missionary organization, which is around over 100 years later, still doing the same thing. Those missionaries will not ask for money. So his motives were twofold and not taking money, and working as a tent maker so he wouldn't have to take money. First motive was so he wouldn't be a burden to the church. They might not have had a lot of money. The second motive is... The second reason that he didn't take money from the Corinthians is so his motives in preaching the gospel would not be questioned. People would not say he's preaching for profit. We go to verse 4, Acts 18. He, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. And again, the question is, why would there be Greeks in the synagogue? That's because they were Greek proselytes, probably proselytes of the gate. God-fearers, they're called, they have to keep some of the. they have to... Basically, not eat pork and shrimp. They don't have to get circumcised. Those were proselytes of righteousness, but but they were basically Greeks who were halfway, halfway Jews, if you will, halfway Gentiles and halfway Jews. And this is very common in Paul's missionary journeys. Note that Paul here in Corinth went to the synagogue first. This was his usual custom. I think in Lat in the last chapter, Act seventeen, it the Luke actually says as usual or as his custom. We see this all over the place. i give you one example on the first journey, Acts thirteen forty six. Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, this was at Pisidian Antioch on the first journey, it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul turned to the Gentiles to the exclusion of the Jews, because we see here on the second journey, which is, of course, later, a couple of years later, he was preaching to the Jews. He was still preaching to the Jews, so he still gave them a chance. But we have the same results, usual, not always. The Jews at, at uh, Berea were, were quite nice and receptive, but usually the Jews in the synagogues got mad, started screaming and hollering, started riots, took him, took Paul and the, his fellow apostles to before the Roman magistrates. And so this is what's going to happen here. Notice that it says Paul reasoned. Paul was not anti-intellectual. He used his noggin. He used his brain. He used logic. Nothing wrong with that despite the fact that some Christians get so intellectual that it turns everybody else off. But nonetheless, Paul, you know, Paul had visions. He was not against mystical stuff. He had visions, but he also reasoned. The two do not contradict. Paul tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Some of the people he got converted there, that he did persuade. In Corinth were three, Crispus, Gaius, and Stephanus, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. He could remember. But Paul, those were three converts. Crispus is, is we make special note of him because he was the synagogue leader who got converted in In the next couple of verses. We'll talk about him. Gaius, now there was a Gaius that was mentioned that it, Paul picked up in Derby. I mentioned that previous couple of audios. Some people identify this Gaius with him, most do not, I think. Here's what Easton says about Gaius. He was a Macedonian, Paul's fellow traveler and his fellow traveler and his host at Corinth when he wrote his epistle to the Romans. That of course was on the third journey. He was with his he with his household were baptized by Paul, in that verse I just read to you in first Corinthians one fourteen. During a heathen outbreak against Paul at Ephesus, the mob seized Gaius and Aristarchus because they could not find Paul and rushed them into the theater. So this same Gaius traveled later on in our next stop at Ephesus and got in trouble with the mob there. But at any rate, Paul has a few converts there, and we're going to see a little bit later he's going to get a whole lot more converts, and we're going to have a thriving church at Corinth. We go now to verse 5 of Acts chapter 18, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. See, he's still preaching to the Jews and left them out. Now, Silas and Timothy, they, of course, were on the second journey, but they disappeared. Silas started out with Paul from Syria and Antioch, their home church. Timothy, they picked up on the way in the middle of Asia Minor at Lystra, probably Lystra, maybe Derby, but probably Lystra. Then they went on to the western edge of Asia Minor, the up there, Troas, and they picked up Luke there because that's when the Wee passages start. So we have four people, but then at the time they got to Philippi, the Wee passages had stopped, so people speculate, some people do, that Timothy stopped off in Philippi. They, they, they left Philippi, went to Thessalonica, then went to Berea, and then Paul was sent alone down to Athens and... When he got down there, he asked his escorts to please go up and get Silas and Timothy, and in Berea, and tell them to come meet me in Athens. We don't know if they ever made it to Athens or not. That's speculation. But at any rate, Silas and Timothy have peeled off from the from Paul, and Paul's by himself now in Corinth. He was by himself in Athens, and I'm sure he was anxious for Silas and Timothy to get back with him. Nobody likes to be by yourself on the mission field. So when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, they, of course, they meet Paul. Now, the question is, is where were they? As I just mentioned, I gave you a possible scenario. Here's what the NIV Study Bible says. When Paul sent his Berean escort back to Berea to get Paul, Silas and Timothy and told them to please come back and meet me in Athens, that they did so. Silas and Timothy came to Athens and then left, went back to Macedonia to check on the churches that would be at Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. NIV Study Bible further speculates maybe Silas went to Philippi and Timothy went to Thessalonica. I don't know how they, why they would speculate that, but at any rate, that's what they suggest. And then after having strengthened the churches there, Silas and Timothy then head on back across Greece to get to Corinth where they meet Paul. Well, that's reasonable. But the interesting thing is that Paul has got his missionary buddies back, and I'm sure he was happy about that. And the sad thing is, as Adam Clark points out, this is the last mention of Silas. Nobody mentioned Luke doesn't mention him anymore. Why not? Well, Clark says he probably died, probably died uh, shortly thereafter in Macedonia, which is kind of sad, really. Kind of strange that it's not mentioned anywhere, but it's not. We go to verse 6, Acts chapter 18. But when they, this is the the Jews in the synagogue there, when they resisted and blasphemed, he, Paul, shook his robe and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. The blood being on your heads reminds me of the crowd around Jesus at his crucifixion. May your blood be on our heads and on our children's heads, which it was because Jerusalem went down and they paid for that crime of crucifying Jesus. Their whole city and their whole nation was destroyed. Paul continues that idea, says your blood's on your own heads. Now, he doesn't say that every Jew from now on till eternity is guilty before what? the Jews did to Paul in Corinth. That's nonsense. That's just as stupid as saying that every Jew is guilty for, every, for killing Jesus in eighty thirty. 30. We don't blame every Italian for killing Jesus in eighty thirty. 30. Why would we blame every Jew? That's absurd, but it's amazing there's been a lot of that going around, especially in the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. Paul says, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. In other words, I've preached the gospel. I am not guilty of dereliction of my duty to preach the gospel to my beloved fellow Jews. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And as I said, this is just what he did in Acts 13 with Pisces and Antioch. The Jews rejected him there on the first journey, and so he went to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. This was his pattern. The Jew first, the Gentiles next. He shook the robe that's like shaking the dust off your feet. So he shook the dust off his robe, which has the same symbolism, which is, you know, you, the dirt you people hang around with. The dust on your in the in the atmosphere is filthy because of your blasphemy, and I don't want it. I don't even want it on my robe. It's kind of great symbolism when you think about it, just like shaking the dust from your feet. This this quote here: "Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent." might have come from, uh, uh, it might be an allusion to Ezekiel 33, three, four, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. Now I know certain legalistic Christians have heaped tons of guilt on Christians to get them to witness about Jesus. You don't tell this person about Jesus, the blood's on your head. Well, you know, if you indiscriminately use that verse, if you use that verse to indiscriminately blame Christians for not witnessing to this person or that, well, you can do the same thing to Paul. He didn't witness to anybody at Apollonia on the first journey or Perga on the way in. He didn't witness to anybody. Does that mean all the Pergamites, the blood's on their head, all the Apollonians, the blood is on Paul's head? No, of course not. It just means that you got to be responsible to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. And then you're innocent. Nobody can blame you. If the people reject Christ, it's their fault, not yours. I mean, you can't blame somebody for rejecting Christ, really, except for Romans 2 and natural revelation, but you can't really blame them for rejecting the gospel of Christ if you don't give it to them. Now, after he shook his robe off and walked away from the synagogue, Paul apparently never went back to that Corinthian synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, is going to be converted later. He was probably converted in Titius Justice's house, which is next door. We go now to Acts 18, verse 7. So he, Paul, left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice. He left where? He left from the synagogue. Not Corinth, as some people suggest possibly. No, he went. He left from the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, a God-fearer, whose house was next door to the synagogue. He was one of those Gentile proselytes to Judaism, most probably. Maybe he was a Gentile heathen who was interested in God. I don't know. Titius was a common name, so it's obvious he's a Greek. He's a, he's a Gentile. That name Titius is given to distinguish him from the famous Titus, one of Paul's fellow workers, as mentioned in Second Corinthians 2 7 and 8. Different Titus here. This is Titius Justice. Now, his house was next door, and this was a convenient place for people who habitually went to the synagogue to hear Paul. I mean, there might have been some people going to the synagogue. They didn't blaspheme, but wanted to hear Paul. And so they're going to the synagogue. They say, well, we can't hear Paul in the synagogue. He's been sort of kicked out, but we can go next door to Titius Justice's house. Now, Titius Justice's house was a good place to more easily draw a mixed audience compared to a gen- synagogue because he was Gentile. And so Gentiles could come there as well as Jews. Now, notice after Paul left the synagogue, what about the number of conversions? Well, they rapidly increased, as we'll see here in the next verse persecution didn't stop the spread of the gospel. In this case, Acts 18.8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Ah, there's a household. That does not mean that the whole household was saved without faith just because Crispus, the leader of the household, was saved. No, it means that people in his household accepted Christ. They probably followed his lead, but they had to have saving faith in order for them to get saved. Many of the Christians, when they heard many of the Corinthians when they heard, believed, and were baptized. Now, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, having been converted, Paul baptized him, as we just read in First 1 Corinthians 1.14. Now, after he was converted, he must have lost his job as the leader of the synagogue because, we see later on, a new synagogue leader named Sosthenes was involved in the legal proceeding against Paul, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. So many people believed and were baptized. This was an ongoing process, as the NIV Study Bible says, pointing out the tense of the verb, they were believing and were being baptized. It was a process. There they they was converts. Churches growing. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, what did they hear? Well, I'm sure it was they heard the gospel. Some people suggest that many of the Corinthians, when they heard that Crispus had been saved, they also believed. They say, well, now this is such a remarkable thing that a leader, a Jewish leader of the synagogue would say, well, I think I want to look into this, and then they got saved too. Now, it could be. I think there was probably the preaching of the gospel that they heard. What is what? So this Christmas who got saved, what was his job as leader of the synagogue? This is from Adam Clark. Well, he presided over all the assemblies of the synagogue. He interpreted the law. He decided what was lawful and unlawful, sort of like a judge. He punished the refractory, sort of like a policeman. He excommunicated the rebellious. He solemnized marriages and he issued divorces. So this was a, an important guy. Did a lot of stuff. He got saved. Notice that word many many of the Corinthians heard believed were baptized. We don't know how many, but it was many. They were probably Gentiles as well as Jews, mostly Gentiles, probably. This was the beginning of the church at Corinth. Now it's really interesting that the Jews of the synagogue blasphemed Paul, blasphemed God, excuse me, and rejected Paul, but then one of their leaders converts. That must have made them feel sort of bad. They had to elect Sosthenes to take Crispus's place. We go to Acts 18, verses 9 through 10. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Now, a night vision, I believe it was not a dream. It's a vision. A vision is when you see something while you're wide awake. I believe the vision just happened at night. I don't believe it was a dream, although John Gill says it was a dream. Why would Paul be afraid? Why would Jesus be saying to Paul, now don't be don't be afraid, keep on speaking. Well, we're gonna see here that Paul's gonna get dragged before the authorities again, so that could make him afraid. He had just baptized Crispus. That's a leading member of the synagogue. That would really get the Jews torqued off. That was not just an ordinary conversion. Paul may have been thinking, maybe it's time to get out of Dodge, leave Corinth. John, Gill, Adam, Clark, and Jameson, Foster, and Brown all suggest that Paul may have been thinking of leaving Corinth at this point. And Jesus is saying, no, no, let's hold on here. See, Paul was always led by the Spirit, and this is being led by the Spirit, par excellence. Jesus is saying, hold on, hold on, don't leave. Nobody's going to hurt you. I've got many people in this city. Now, what does that mean, many people? Does that mean many people are already converted, they'll take care of you, and they'll protect you? I don't think so. I think that's unlikely. Adam, Clark, and Jameson, Foster, and Brown say, says that, what Jesus is talking about, I have many people in this city who have not been converted yet, and you need to convert them. You need to lead them into the kingdom. I think that's most probably the case there. Jesus says in verse 10 to Paul in this night vision, For I am with you. Does not, does not that sound like the Great Commission? Matthew 28:20, 20. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, teaching the nations. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love that verse. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. What did, what did the author of Hebrews say? I will never, talking about the Lord, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. God, Jesus did not forsake Paul. He will never forsake anybody that believes in him. We turn now to Acts 18, verse 11. And he, Paul, stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So you see, Paul is a teacher, as well as an evangelist, as well as an apostle. We don't need to rigidly assign gifts to people Some people have more than one gift, and sometimes they switch from one gift to another. The lines are a little bit blurry. Now, during this year and six months, he may have also taken the gospel to neighboring districts of Achaia. Achaia is the Roman province of this Greece. We read in 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to God's church at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, which sounds like maybe Paul might have been doing some evangelizing in Greece in Achaia. We don't know that. Somebody else could have got him converted. But anyway, you can see the gospel is spreading. Now, while he stayed there for that year and six months, he wrote letters to churches. Now, here are some of the letters that we know about. For example, 1 Thessalonians, which was written in 51 AD, according to the NIV Study Bible. 2 Thessalonians, which was written in AD 51, end of 51, beginning of 52, NIV Study Bible. And, of course, we know that the second journey is between 49 and 52, so that that's when 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were written from Corinth on the second journey. Now, some people think that Galatians was written from here, but this is questionable. They haven't been, the scholars haven't been able to pin this down. Some say Galatians was written from in 48 and 49 from Syrian Antioch. That would be before the second journey. Some people say that it was written here from Corinth, 51 or 52. And some people say it was after the second journey was over from Syria and Antioch. So some people say Galatians was written before the second journey. Some say after the second journey. And some say during the second journey from Corinth. Uh, we don't know. But it, and by the way, Romans was, not written, was written from Corinth, but that was on the third journey, not the second journey, according to Bible.org. So Paul was busy writing the Bible, preaching the gospel, teaching the Corinthians, year and a half. Traveling is over for a while. Acts 18 verse 12, when Galileo, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united t- attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. I guess the Jews finally got fed up with Paul's missionary success, and they're going to put an end to it. Can't beat him with words. Can't beat him in debate. Can't beat him in an appeal to the Old Testament scripture, so we're just going to shut him down. This is, what, this is what all people who do not have good arguments do. They use power to shut people down like it's happening on college campuses today, these left-wing fruitcakes going around shutting down people whose opinions they don't agree with, and the reason they're using power to do it is because they are totally incapable of rational argument. Well, this is what the Jews did here. Now, who's this Galileo who was proconsul of Achaia? Well, first of all, Achaia is the Roman term for the province of Greece. All of Greece was in a Roman province, and the Romans called it Achaia from the ancient Greek term, one of the ancient tribes of Greece. Proconsul is kind of like a governor. Of a, of a Roman province. Now, who was Gallio? Well, he's kind of interesting. He was the brother of the famous Stoic philosopher, the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca. And Seneca, of course, was the tutor of Nero. So Gallio Gal- had friends in high places. I mean, Seneca was not only the tutor of Nero, he was the advisor of Nero. He, he stayed with Nero a long time, tried to train him up, tried to keep him from becoming a bar- barbaric monster that he did become. And unfortunately, eventually, Nero forced Seneca, when he got suspicious of him, to get into a warm bath and slit his wrist. The warm bath makes the blood flow easier, and Seneca killed himself. Stoically, I'm sure. And at the same time that Seneca had to die, Nero forced Gallio to die also. Which is kind of a shame. But now, the NIV study Bible and other sources point out that Gallio Galile- was admired as a man of exceptional fairness and calmness. Here's a quote from John Gill. It was to this Gallio that Seneca dedicates his book De Ira on peace. Seneca describes him as a man of the most amiable mind and manners. That's his own brother, but I'm sure he's biased a little bit, but still. He was the most amiable, he had the most amiable mind and manners. He was of the sweetest disposition, Seneca continues, affable to all and beloved by every man. So this is a good person to be, good judge to have if you're Paul. He was proconsul of Achaia from A.D. 51-52, the secular records tell us, and that's how we date the date of Paul's missionary journey, 49-52. to It also, in ways that I don't understand yet, helps date the two Thessalonian letters, which I just finished saying were written from Corinth here on the second journey. Another interesting thing about Galileo, his brother was Seneca. He had another brother named Aeneas Mela, and Aeneas Mela was the father of the famous Roman poet Lucan. So that means Gallio was the uncle of Lucan, the famous Roman poet, and he was the brother of Seneca, the famous Roman philosopher, Stoic philosopher, and tutor of Nero. So he was a big shock. Now, why did the Jews bring Paul to a Roman official? Because the Romans were running the province at the time. The Jews had no jurisdiction legally over Paul, of course, so they had to appeal to the Roman authorities. If they, they had the power to do it, I'm sure they would have just killed Paul outright, as Adam Clark suggests. We go to verse 13 of Acts 18. This man, that's this man Paul, they, the Jews before Gallio, this man, they said, persuades people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, what is the law? The law is you cannot introduce any foreign religion into a Roman province. You have to stay with the gods that are already there. And the reason for that is, is the Romans wanted peace. They didn't want religious disturbances, so they figured the status quo was what's going to bring peace. Now, Judaism was recognized by the Romans as a legal religion. So the Jews are saying Paul is introducing a religion that's not recognized by the Romans as legal. And, you know, technically they were right because Christianity was a different religion than the Romans. However, Paul, if, Paul is not going to even have, have to speak here because Galileo is going to dismiss the case. But if Paul had, would have defended himself against this, the NIV study Bible has interesting speculations of how Paul could have defended himself. Paul could have said that the gospel he was preaching was the faith of his fathers, so therefore he was preaching just a sect of Judaism, if you will. And of course, that would be authorized by Roman law. For example, in Acts 24, verses 14 through 15, Paul says this, But I confess this to you I worship my Father's God. I worship my Father's God. See there? Judaism. Special Judaism. Messianic Judaism. Christian Judaism, but it's still Judaism. I worship my Father's God. Acts twenty four fourteen and fifteen according to the way which they call a sect, believing all the things that are written in the law and the prophets. See, I believe in the law. I believe in the prophets. I'm legal. I'm Jewish. I'm legal. religio, religio licita, a licensed religion, a free religion. It's it's I, I can I can preach here, and I have hope in God, which these men themselves also accept that there's going to be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. So Paul. Identifies himself with the Jewish, the Pharisaical Jewish belief in resurrection, his the fathers, the law, the prophets. Acts 26 verses six through seven. Paul says this, and now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So you see, and he says that promise was the promise our twelve tribes hoped to obtain, our Jewish. He's identifying himself with Jews, our twelve tribes. He's identifying himself with the 12 patriarchs of Israel. So Paul could have, he could have probably won that case if he argued that way. We have no evidence that he ever did that. But, well, he did do it here. And this is back in after the third journey when the Jews in Jerusalem were getting all hot and bothered with him. So he did use that technique to show that he was not being, he was not doing anything illegal. But the Jews, the Jews from the Corinthian synagogue are making this claim before Gallio that. The religion that Paul is teaching is illegal. Now, some people say that it's contrary to the Jewish law that they're complaining, that they're saying Paul was teaching. Paul's religion was contrary to the Jewish law. I don't think so. I think it's contrary to the Roman law. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown and John Gill suggest that it's the law of Moses that they were teaching against. And, you know, there's an argument for that because, as we'll see in the next couple of verses, Gallio said, I don't want to be a judge of such things of these things. Your own law questions about words, names, and your own law. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with that. So maybe, maybe you know, maybe that's not as absurd as it sounds. Maybe it's talking about the Jewish law. The Jews are complaining because Paul is contravening the Jewish law, not the Roman law. I still think he was probably appealing to the Roman law because the Romans hated for there to be disturbances, and that would be a logical thing to appeal to. Although there was no riot at the time that this was going on. All right, maybe that's a close question. They were violating some kind of law the Jews brought said to the Romans. Acts eighteen verses fourteen through fifteen, as Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, "If it were a matter of a crime or of moral evil, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things. And once again, a Roman official, just like Pilate at the crucifixion of Jesus, he said, "Look, I don't want to get involved in questions of Jewish law. That's your business, not mine. I'm trying to keep peace here. Crimes, moral evil, that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll adjudicate that. As I'll adjudicate cases that have to do with Jews as citizens, but not as religious Jews. Questions about words and names. What might Galileo? Uh, Gallio, excuse me. What, what might Galileo be referring to there? Well, here's what Ellicott, the commentator, says." was a teacher whom both parties spoke of as Jesus the Nazarene, entitled also to bear the name of Christos, Messiah. So that was the name, who's the Messiah? That, that, was, that was my guess before I looked it up in the commentary and found Ellicott agreed with me. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Galileo is not interested in who the Messiah is as a judge. Should, he should have been interested personally, but he, as a judge he said, I don't care. So this is a perfect person to be taken before if you're Paul. This legal proceeding, in this legal proceeding, he came out smelling like a rose. Gallio seems to be a just man. He knew a trumped-up unjust charge when he saw it. So he says, Paul, you're free. And now we go to verses 16 and 17 in Acts chapter 18. So he, that's Galio, drove them, that's the Jews, from the judge's bench. Then they all see Sosthenes, and the they is ambiguous. We'll talk about that in a minute. Somebody they all see Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, that's the new leader of the synagogue, Crispus, the old leader, had gotten converted, apparently lost his position. They all see Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench, but none of these things concern Gallio. Now, who is the they that sees Sosthenes? The King James has in the text, the Greeks beat Sosthenes. Adam Clark says that there's lots of manuscript evidence that that says the KGV is wrong about that, and so most of the modern translations have they. Well, now, who is the they? Well, it's probably the Jews beat their own synagogue ruler. They say, look, you come. we've got these Christians going around teaching in Corinth, and you take the case before the Roman magistrate, Gallio, and you don't win it. You can't win it. You didn't win it. So to heck with you, and they started beating him up. These people were fanatics, obviously. They wanted to beat Paul up. Instead, they beat the leader of the Jewish synagogue up. That's what I think it means. Now, some people agree with the King James and say that it was the Greeks that beat Sosthenes up, and the NIV Study Bible, in fact, leans to that option. But I've got a question. Why would all of a sudden Greeks get upset with Jews? What's their motive in beating up the Jews? I don't know what it would be, and if they're going to, why beat him up in front of a judge or in, in a judge's? If 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 South, if uh, Galileo had left the judge's seat, why would they beat somebody up in a in the place of a legal proceeding? Well, John Gill speculates. I I think this is what he's saying is that the Greeks must have had some unspecified grievance against the Jews there in Corinth, and when Galileo Galileo rebuffed the Jews and said, "Hey, I'm not interested in this stuff. None of my business." They the The Gentiles said, aha, good time to beat old Sosthenes to a pulp. Well, that's nice, but I don't think that's what it is. I think the Jews beat their own synagogue leader up. Now, that's a rough way to get started. You just got elected the new synagogue leader in Corinth, and then you get your rupus beaten up (laughs) by your own people. Talk about a revolt. The DW Study Bible and John Gill have an interesting speculation. They say that perhaps this Sosthenes may have later converted to Christ. They quote 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he quotes Sosthenes. But James of Fawcett and Brown says it's very improbable that this Sosthenes is the same as the second synagogue ruler. I tend to think so too. I don't think he got converted, at least not that we can tell from inferring things from Scripture. Now, another question. Why would Galileo not be concerned about Sosthenes getting beaten up? Judges don't like people to get beat up in a courtroom, do they? Adam Clark and John Gill speculate that Galileo was fed up with the turbulent and uneasy, with the turbulent and uneasy Jews. Assuming, of course, that it was the Jews and not the Gentiles that was beating up Sosthenes. Well, that could be. But you notice also that it could be... It doesn't say that Galileo, Galileo was there watching the beating it says the beating took place in front of the judge's bench Galileo could have left after he said paul you could go he could have gotten up and left and then the fight broke out so that might be why galileo was not concerned about Sosthenes being beaten up because he wasn't there to see it so either he was there and saw it and he was said well way to go you crazy jews i'm tired of dealing with you you deserve to get beat up well if that's the case then john gill points out this was not galileo's Gallio's finest hour. It was his job to maintain the peace. Uh, And it was especially bad for violence to break out right in a court of justice. Now, of course, the defense of Gallio Clark points out that as I said, Gallio might not have been present when the beating occurred because the verse says the beating occurred in front of the judge's bench, not in front of the judge. Adam Clark says this, quote, the conduct of Gallio has been in this case greatly censored and I think with manifest injustice in the business brought before his tribunal no man could have followed a more prudent or equitable course clark goes on to say that galio gets a bad rap from preachers who say he was not concerned about eternal things well that's true and what what they do is they look at this it says right here but none of these things concern Galileo. and ah there's your sermon see there he's not concerned about eternal things and so this is a terrible thing old galio did but that's not what the text means. It means none of the things, none of the things about Jewish names and and words, the law of the Jews, who the Messiah is, who's getting beat up. <laughs> none of that stuff concerned Galileo. It wasn't that he was not being concerned about spiritual things. That's taking the text out of context. One last point. Verse 16 says he, Galileo, drove them, the Jews, from the judges' bench. What does that word drove mean? Clark says it's not driving them out with violence, but rather with an authoritative dismissal. Well, however, Galileo got rid of the Jews. They got rid of, they were gotten rid of, and Paul is free. We'll stop right here, but in verse 18, it says Paul having stayed on for many days, he didn't need to get out of town. He stayed on for a long time after that. So good news from the court system for Paul. We'll continue with his stay Well we'll continue with his second missionary journey as he moves on to Ephesus in the last part of Acts chapter 18. I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.